Welcome back to the Hard Run Box podcast for episode 16. We have got a guest on the show, Simon from TFT Central, who is an excellent monitor reviewer on both his website and YouTube channel. We're going to be chatting a lot about monitors and display technology in this uh, podcast episode. Almost said video, but it is meant for audio. So we're going to be talking about our favorite monitors of the year. We're going to be talking about OLED versus LCD, the advancements from both of those technologies in the future, especially next year, things that we've heard may be coming soon. We've got some exciting things things about 500 hertz monitors dsc we've talked about pretty much everything there is to know about monitors in this in this episode our deal breakers for reviews all sorts of things so really enjoyable episode if you're a fan of monitors unbox and monitor content you will very much appreciate this one so let's get straight into it hey simon how are you going it's been a long time since i've uh hopped on board and had a chat with you i think the last time was back in january over on your youtube channel Really enjoyed having a chat with you over there. And the first time uh, talking to you for this podcast, actually the very first guest we've ever had on the podcast. So you're in a sort of uh, special group there. We're about to talk about a whole bunch of monitors, but do you just want to yeah, give us an, an introduction of who you are and where you come from? Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Well, I'm honored to be the first. So uh, yeah, thanks for having me. So yeah, I'm Simon Baker. I run tftcentral.co.uk. Um, it's a website and YouTube channel dedicated to monitor reviews, information, news, articles, all kinds of things, anything monitor related. So yeah, like you say, we had a chat back in January about all things monitors. And you know, I know we've been in touch since, but it doesn't seem like that long ago since we last spoke face to face. So yeah, thank, thanks again for having me on the channel. Yeah, it's awesome. I've really appreciated uh, your time today and also just your reviews over the years. Um, you know, as far as like the I don't know, the top tier of monitor reviewers out there. I think TFT Central certainly does some very in-depth reviews that are definitely worth reading and looking at. Um, you know, If you've been a fan of monitors unboxed over from our side of things, I think you'll be pretty interested in TFT Central's work as well, sort of very similar in-depth testing style, real numbers about monitors, real testing, not just putting it in front of you and saying, this looks good. Um, so yeah, it's always nice to, to chat with another monitor enthusiast. And that's really the... Yeah, the goal of today's podcast episode, usually on the podcast, we're talking about PC hardware and PC tech, but obviously you know, here at Hardware Unbox, Monitors Unbox, we do a lot of monitor content as well. So we're going to be talking about you know favorite monitors, our thoughts on the industry and some interesting testing that's been happening. So I just wanted to kick this one off. Just, you know, we're, we're in December now. It's the end of the year. It's been a long year of testing with What's your favorite monitor? What's the best monitor that you've tested in 2023? God, good question. Um, it's so hard. Like I was thinking about this the other day. It's so hard to pin it down to a single monitor because I, I always feel like every monitor I review and test has got that kind of use case for a certain audience. And so there's never going to be, never seems to be a single monitor that's going to fit everybody. But I think, you know, this year for me has been, it's been all about OLED monitors if I look mm -hmm. back at the reviews I've done, it just seems to be a constant flow of OLED to the point where I'm thinking, oh, I really need to get back and do some LCD reviews as well. But, you know, the arrival of 240 hertz OLED, 27 inch, you know, a big mainstream uh, size, you know, a segment that's not been attacked before. I think that's been really good. So I, I, if I had to pick any one monitor, I think it would probably be probably the Asus ROG Swift PG27AQDM. Like I think that's that's my current pick of the 27-inch OLED monitors. Mm -hmm. 
I just I really liked the updated style of it. I thought it was a strong performer. It doesn't need things like a, an active cooling fan, so it's got that custom heat sink, which I, I think is you know important for a desktop monitor. I I just thought it was a a very solid all-round screen if you want to go into that OLED market. But of course, there's widescreen models mm-hmm. available. There's mini LED, so. I guess we can talk about that in a minute, but that would probably be my my pick of the year so far. It's good that we've got you on the podcast because that would have been my pick as well for sort of my favorite monitor of the year for pretty much the same reasons. And I think once you, you know, you test monitors a lot, you sort of converge on the same sort of things that you're sort of looking for. And yeah, I think, you know, just to expand on what you were saying, like just the way that it, it wasn't just like a copy of the other versions that used the same panel as Asus actually tried to, provide some additional features in particular it's enhanced brightness that we got across you know compared to some of the other models um you know i think i've tested now five of them i think four or five of them and it still is sort of in that crown position in terms of its brightness especially for hdr which you know is a big thing for these sort of oled monitors and yeah as you say not everyone is going to be buying an oled at this point there are still people you know we see people concerned about burning and various different other factors about oleds that they don't necessarily want it but overall i think it's a it's a really high quality gaming monitor and of course you know both of us test primarily gaming monitors so our favorites are probably not going to be like some professional pro grade display or a tv or or something like that so yeah, as far as gaming monitors go, I think that that's a pretty pretty good product. And that really brings, you know, we're just talking about LCDs there. That really brings us into just the current state of the market. OLED versus LCD is a big topic at the moment. How are you seeing things, you know, in terms of that factor? Like, how's the OLED market going? Is LCD, you know, some people say LCD is dying. Do, do you agree with that? I think it's hard to say it's dying at this stage. I think there's obviously less innovation at the moment because there's such a focus from you know, your key display manufacturers, they're all focusing on OLED at the moment. The last year and a year or two has been really a drive on that technology. But I think until until it's usable for a wider range of use cases than just dynamic content, you know, gaming, movies, I, I think LCD is still going to have its place, you know, because there's problems, as you know, with or, or limitations with text clarity and image quality for static use. There's the risk of burning that you just mentioned, which I think is still a bit of an unknown in this space. I, mm-hmm. you know, from what I've heard, there's been positive positive feedback from the manufacturers, the display manufacturers and the panel manufacturers about the image retention performance so far to the point where I think it's allowing them to now push things like brightness higher and you know start to take away some of the image protection features that can be annoying like you know, auto dimming and that kind of thing. So I think, but I think it's still very early on to, to know whether these these screens are going to last you for like three years, five years, 10 years even. So I think like LCD for me has still got its place when, when you've got primarily, like if you're going to be doing static use, web work, uh, image editing, photo editing, that kind of thing. I don't think OLED is as suited there. And I just think like the innovation in that LCD space is, is going to have to shift to, like we're seeing the shift already now, I think, to mini LED. That seems to be the mm-hmm. the approach to drive LCD into the next phase. I, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, we're starting to see this year sort of those lower cost mini LED monitors. Previously, they were sort of very expensive to get an actual full array local dimming with an adequate number of zones. You used to have to pay, what, like $800, $1,000 US plus for that sort of technology. I've just been testing. I've seen you've been testing as well. So monitors that are 
400 $500 US, even less than that, that have actual local dimming, like 576 zone or 336 zone. We've seen that as a variant as well um, with actual mini LED backlights. And yeah, they're not sort of standing still and, and going, yeah, okay, so you just want the same, you want the same 1440p, 165 hertz IPS LCD with no HDR. They're sort of going, well, you know, if OLED has already taken the place of $800, I think you can even get some of them for like $700 US on sale, the 1440p, 240Hz monitors, yeah. then they can't really offer it at that price, especially for something that isn't even like a 240Hz with mini LED. So yeah, it's good to see that that drive down in price. I, I can't say I've been the most impressed with the quality of those products just yet. I've recently looked at the Cooler Master monitor the new GP2711, which has a VA panel. I've been, I've got an Acer monitor in as well for testing. And both those have some, you know, quality issues. You know, they're not perfect monitors. Uh, and I've seen you as well. You've just recently published an AOC review, which I think will be live for everyone by the time this week. Podcast, goes, yeah. podcast goes out. But how did you see that monitor? Like it was very cheap. I haven't actually read too much of your review, but how, how did it go? I, I thought it was really good, actually, to be honest. It was, that's, I think that retails at the moment for about 260 US dollars. So it's got 336 okay. zone mini LED. It's a VA panel. So I, I think I'm starting to see a better performance from an HDR point of view from those VA panels. I think they're more suited to HDR content and local dimming than the IPS panels. Mm-hmm. So yeah, great. in the review, there's a nice side-by-side comparison of uh, an IPS mini LED versus a VA mini LED from an from an off angle and you can see where the blooming starts to appear around highlights on the IPS panel but it's completely masked on the VA panel so i think there's a nice niche there for VA in the in the HDR monitor space but yeah 260 dollars i thought was an amazing price for 27 inch 1440p 180 hertz decent mini led backlight it had a couple of I think they're bugs rather than limitations. There was an issue at the moment with the sRGB mode that mm-hmm. um, I fed back to AOC, which I'm hoping they can address with a firmware update. But beyond that, it, it really was pretty solid for a screen of that price. So I think like with LED, uh, sorry, with OLED arriving uh, in, the, in that sort of 800 to 1200 US dollar kind of price range, it's forcing the LCD market to, to, to move downwards in price. And I think that's making those decent hdr screens far more affordable in that kind of 200 to 400 dollar range where you'd never get that before you know if you go back a couple of years they were thousands of dollars yeah it makes it like it's a long time coming really like they sort of dragged their feet a little bit i think with introducing mini led into those sorts of markets because you know they're just swapping out the backlight like the the majority of the technology in those products is pretty similar to what we've already got so it's not like they've having to completely redo the LCD layer or the other elements of the display. It's mostly just, you know, backlight, scale of processing, tuning, which it is complicated, like especially for gaming, having it to work with adaptive sync and differing refresh rates and high refresh rates and making it actually all perform well together. But realistically, those products probably shouldn't be costing like $800 to manufacture and produce and yeah, a, a small premium over a non-mini LED backlight makes a lot of sense for me. Unfortunately, the, the Cooler Master model I was was testing, which I think the review actually goes live in the middle of us recording this podcast, but yeah, they, they had some just tuning issues, not so much like the quality of the panel outside of the, the VA 
performance, you know, being a VA panel that isn't from Samsung. It was things like, you know, the HDR was very, very dark, which made it quite difficult to actually play games on it. But th- those are fixable problems. It, it isn't like the backlight was bad or it was flickering or didn't have enough zones to give you proper HDR. It was more they've taken that panel and they haven't quite done enough with it to make it actually good. And it was obviously more expensive than the AOC model as well, priced at, I think, $450 US. So yeah, have to test I- that AOC one, but unfortunately they don't sell it here. So... Yeah. No, they're a bit more European based. I, I've been testing that same Cooler Master screen over the last mm-hmm. m- month or so, but I'm I, so I haven't published a review yet. I'm trying to talk to uh, to Cooler Master about some of those issues because I, you know, I think in the past, if you look back at the screens they released last year, the the GP27U and the GP27Q, they did a pretty good job of updating the firmware and making that available you know, mm-hmm. at launch yep. or soon after and addressing some of these bugs. So I fed back some of those uh, issues, like you say, around HDR performance. I thought the response times could do with tweaking. I, I'm not sure if you if you felt yeah, the same, but it's pretty slow. a high level of black smearing on the initial sample I've got. Um, but I think, like you say, the technology's there. The mini LED backlight is certainly capable. Again, it's a VA panel. I think it's it's got the potential, but I know that they'll be, they're, they're normally pretty good about um, updating the firmware and I don't think that's due to be hitting retail until maybe January. So there's probably a little yeah. bit of time for them to fix that between the time that you and I review it and feed this stuff back and then it hits the shelves and hopefully it's updated. So, you know, maybe you'll have a chance to revisit it as well when they, if they do. And that's certainly my I'll, intention to try and look at it. Yeah, I'll definitely be revisiting it. I did ask them whether the firmware was the final version of the firmware and they're like, it's, it's, a, it's the version, it's the shipping version of the firmware. I'm like, all right. I'll review it. (laughs) Um, I I did ask, yeah. Yeah. uh, But yeah, I mean, Cooler Master, at least the monitor does have user upgradable firmware, which I think is a really key feature for monitors these days. You know, uh, what was interesting actually is I saw that Dell recently released a firmware update for the AW3423DW. So not the F model, the DW model, which they swore black and blue over email to me that not only did that monitor not support firmware updates, but that it didn't need a firmware update and that no consumer monitor needs a firmware update. So very interesting that they've sort of backflipped on that one and it turns out it actually can do firmware updates. So don't know what was happening there. But, you know, we've seen products where a monitor manufacturer always wants the product to be pretty much good to go out of the box. It's not like a a GPU where you need driver updates for upcoming games. It is just expected to work. But, you know, I guess there's been times we've seen some pretty unusual behavior that may be from just configurations that they weren't able to test, like some monitors that perform differently on AMD versus NVIDIA GPUs. Maybe those are configurations that they didn't quite have the time to test. Or there's just areas that could be tweaked and improved. Things like EOTF tracking for HDR to get get it so that it, it looks nice and accurate is something that a lot of HDR monitor manufacturers struggle with. So having user upgradable firmware is a a very important feature in my opinion. And Cooler Master is sort of one of the brands that pays more attention to doing those things. But even then, like I've seen quite a number of manufacturers release pretty significant firmware updates over the last couple of years. You know, a lot of the OLEDs have been updated. Corsair, Acer have updated their models. LG's updated theirs. I think Asus as well, all to fix various different things. It's really crucial. Yeah, I think it's really important. I mean, a pet peeve of mine is when they release an update with no explanation as to what it's fixing. You know, I think yeah. you see that quite often from Samsung, particularly some of their models that are 
that have the sort of built-in software or smart TV type features that, you know, there's a random update that appears with no explanation as to what it's fixing or what it's doing. You know, half the time it's probably minor, you know, like software fixes to the on-screen display or something, but it would be nice to know what's being addressed so that, you know, people people know what they're upgrading to and then like we can consider going back and looking at them again. And do you think you'll go back and look at the AW3423DW? I mean, it's my primary gaming monitor at the moment, so I still do have it. I haven't run the update just yet but because uh, I've been doing a few other things. But, yeah, I mean, I had quite a few issues with that because I've got the a version with the very initial firmware. So with that monitor, they had the initial firmware and then people that bought it a couple of months later started to get, you know, different versions of the firmware and that was sort of a lottery thing that people were contending with because they said that they couldn't update the firmware on those monitors, at least on the user side. So I've got the original firmware. It does have issues with things like the so, uh, OLED care features popping up randomly at times that it shouldn't, it, the fan noise being quite annoying. So I'm, I'm keen to check it out and, and run it because it is actually my personal monitor. And I think, yeah, for the next sort of update where I say, hey, I've been using this monitor for 18 months or two years or something, I might uh, roll some of that into that. But yeah, I've sort of, I try to keep on top of the firmware updates, but oftentimes I don't even know that they've happened because you kind of have to you know look on the website like there's no they could email me as a reviewer but if you've just bought it like how do you really find out that there's a firmware update on all of these products you don't unless someone's telling you that it's there or you're looking every so often it's quite hard to know that this there is a software update available or that even your monitor supports software updates because often they're not even there's not like an option in the the osd or something it's all sometimes can be a bit hidden so yeah well and particularly if the manufacturer's telling you to your face that it won't support it and never needs it, you know, why would you yeah. ever go looking for a firmware update? Um, yeah, exactly. But it'd be interesting to see if what that improves and if it helps, because, you know, I know that over the last year, you've been recommending the DWF ahead of the DW, as mm-hmm. have I as well, because because of things like the ability to update firmware. And they released a, an update, I think it was earlier this year, where that addressed some of the early issues with that model. So that's that's available for what 400 us dollars less than the dw 300 400 dollars less so maybe they've realized the need to update other one to stop <laughs> stop everyone taking the dwf that we're recommending ahead of it um but yeah you know fair play that they've bothered to offer an update and uh, an update it i think um you know on that topic it was really nice to see the updates this year to the Asus PG27AQN, um, yeah. where the, where NVIDIA worked with Asus and they added ULMB2. You know, that, that came out of nowhere, really. It was just, hey, here's this brand new feature that wasn't there at all, but is actually really decent. I, I thought that was a nice addition. Um, uh, and then they started to roll that out to some of their subsequent monitors that, that have been released since, like the PG248QP and things like mm-hmm. that but you know that sometimes these updates are really big they're not just minor little tweaks to things they can be pretty decent functionality yeah especially if you've got those like samsung monitors as well which have the full smart tv processor there is scope there to add in entirely new features and ways to access content because they've got that side of things added in and i think the pg27 aqn was sort of an, a very interesting one because it, it didn't really have that sort of i mean it has a g-sync processor but it didn't really have that sort of interface that you'd normally see updates produced for. So to get a whole new feature is pretty rare, but sort of shows the importance that of having that sort of thing. And hopefully we see other monitors 
you know, these these products are pretty expensive. Like that monitor was over a thousand dollars US to buy. A lot of these OLED monitors as well are well over a thousand dollars. We should be seeing pretty significant software support if you're expecting to have it for three to five years. At the very least, fixing the issues that we bring up in our reviews. But on top of that, if there are like, for example, if there was a new version of the OLED G8 and it had a whole bunch of additional software features, I'd very much like to see those brought back to the original model if if it's supported and is possible on that sort of hardware. There really wouldn't be, you know, with the capabilities there, it's really should be possible for that to happen. One thing I did want to ask you about, though, you keep a lot more in check with upcoming monitors, product roadmaps, panel roadmaps, a lot of that stuff you can see on TFT Central that we don't really cover too much on Monitors Unbox. So I want to ask, are those 4K OLEDs, they say they're coming in the first quarter of 2024, 4K QD OLED, high refresh rate, do you reckon they're actually coming at that time or is it just a soft, like a paper launch? I don't think they're going to make it for the January timescales that were originally suggested. So if you, if you look at the ASUS model was one of the first to be announced back in August at Gamescom. That was that was touted for January. I'm pretty sure even they might have even taken down their the page about that product on their website. I've heard nothing more about it since. Okay. Um, the only one that might surprise us, I think, maybe Dell's recently announced models. They they announced a 32 inch and a 27 inch QD OLED monitor that they suggested would be available. I think it was the 11th of January, but it just, nothing's appeared since. Like there's no product page. There's not been any press releases. I followed up with Dell recently to see if I can get any more information on that topic. But I I think I would personally be pretty surprised if they appear that early. I think they're more likely to be towards the end of Q1. Um, That would align better with the panel production schedules that I, I know about previously. I mean, Dell did surprise us, didn't they, with the original... AW3423DW that kind of appeared out of nowhere without much much hype beforehand. So maybe they'll surprise us. But it with the timing of CES in January as well, it feels like maybe they're going to be announcing them more formally at CES. You know, they'll be there, there'll be press releases, you'll be able to see them properly. It was kind of a very brief unveiling at one event. I think it was at TwitchCon, it was done recently. And that's been it. There's been nothing more. So yeah, if I was a betting man, I'd say late in Q1. I don't think they'll make it for January, unfortunately, but maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. There's also a whole bunch of different launches that you could have. Like you can have a wide launch where it's available everywhere globally, which is what we usually like to see. But you know, products like the AW3423DW was much easier to get in some countries than others. Like it launched in Australia several months after it launched in the US, which just made it impossible to get here, impossible to test. So it could be, you know, if they've got like a small batch of products ready to go at the very early parts of 2024, then they might choose like the US or somewhere to launch those products, get a small batch out and then make most people pre-order or wait for a future time. But yeah, it seems pretty aggressive to get them out so soon after, you know, CES, especially if they're going to be more properly unveiling them we don't even really know pricing or final specifications on those products no i saw saw rumors yesterday about some of the specs so there was even a suggestion that the 32 inch dell model would feature dolby vision so i don't really know where that's come from and i'd Mm -hmm. be pretty surprised because i I, i'm pretty sure the the scalar support for that in the monitor space is pretty much non-existent so unless they've Mm. done something very unique uh i'd be surprised to see that as a capability but like like you say we don't really know anything more than 
a bit about the size, a bit about the spec. That's all we've been told. So it just January just seems unrealistic with the whole Christmas time, New Year build up and then CES straight after. I, I would expect them to be definitely announced more formally at CES, along with probably some other similar models from uh, LG, Samsung, maybe. You know, it, it's a QD OLED panel. I'd be amazed if Samsung didn't launch their own 32 inch 4K yeah. 240 hertz option. So I expect there'll be a flurry of them announced at CES and then it'll be a race to see who can get those to the market first. But like you say, I wouldn't really count it if it just launches to the US only in very small quantities. You know, it needs to be a worldwide launch. As soon as it hits the UK, I'll count it as a launch. That's fine. Then, that, that's, you know, as soon as I can get one, it's okay. Yeah, that that makes sense. I've heard from I heard from one company. I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to to say too much about it, but I think they were aiming for they were were not going to meet January at the at the very least. They were not going to, going to be able to meet that for actual product the the product being released and you you'll be able to buy it. So mm. we'll we'll see what happens there. In sort of the early parts of next year, but very excited to see. Um, those products because it's it very much sounds like CES. Like I think it's pretty much confirmed at this point that those products will be like one of the key product releases at CES from some of these companies, along with you know some other stuff in the PC hardware space that will be launched there. So yeah, very keen to check them out. Yeah, I think I think in the monitor space, it's all going to be about 4K, 32 inch, 240 hertz OLEDs, and then 27 inch, 1440p, 360 hertz OLEDs. I think they'll be the two flag flagship offerings at CES and then being launched next year. Like I know, like you mentioned earlier, like the panel roadmaps and things that are available on the website that, you know, there are longer term plans for 480 Hertz OLED and and all kinds of other options. But I think that, you know, there'll be 2025 onwards. I think next year will all be be about those two options primarily. A lot of those 32 inch models announced so far are are based on Samsung's QD OLED panel. Um, So, I think there's decent benefits there in terms of it's a it's a glossier screen coating. I wouldn't call it fully glossy, but it's cleaner and clearer than the WALED models. It's got better text clarity in the Gen 2 panels, black depth and stuff maybe we can talk about in a minute. I know that's a topic we wanted to explore, but I think there's sort of there's one market which is QD OLED, but then I think also interesting is the LG display WOLED panels in that size that are coming slightly later in their development, but will offer additional capabilities like the the option to run at 1080p at 480 hertz uh, via a feature they call DFR. So I yeah. think, you know, if that's implemented as well and, and some of the manufacturers adopt LG's panel alternative, then I think, you know, that will be the first time we'd see, you know, crazy high refresh rates in that OLED space. 480 hertz OLED would be pretty insane. Yeah. So I'm definitely excited to see those and and to to see more of those panels and that kind of continuing innovation really in that space. Let's talk about the panel coding stuff because you've made a a very interesting article and video that actually tests for something that we've sort of, at least I've talked about just more anecdotally in reviews, which is what happens in terms of perception of black depth when you've got different coding. So a lot of people always talk about matte versus glossy and which is better. And there's a group of hardcore glossy fans that are like, I must have glossy panels. And there's some people like glossy is unusable. And then there's obviously the QD OLED stuff as well, where, you know, the just composition of the panel, the coding does reflect some, well, reflect, activate the the QD OLED, uh, the QD part of the QD OLED, various different things. 
the black depth isn't great in some lighting conditions, but you went ahead and actually tested this in a sort of scientific way. So by putting, I mean, you explain the testing. You've done the testing. I've just been reading the article. What were the findings? I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, it, I mean, it was a long period of testing. So I, I got um, a wide selection of monitors from different technologies. So I've got first-gen QDO LED, second-gen, WO LED with matte coating, glossy coating, uh, even the custom glass coating that's about to appear in the market next year. And then I've got all kinds of different LCDs. But the, the idea was to set those screens up in a controlled room environment where I could control the lighting and measure using, so I used my uh, spectro radiometer device, my UPR tech uh, device. It was set at a typical viewing distance and then pointed at the screen so that it could, this is very simplistic terms, but so that it could measure the black depth as I changed the lighting in the room. So basically what I found was that there was, there were differences between the different screen coatings. And then one of the key findings, I think, was there was a big difference between WOLED and QDOLED in terms of how they handle, or, or rather how the screen coating and the screen type handles the, the lighting and how it impacts the black depth that you see. So it was all about trying to put some objective numbers behind our subjective assessment. You know, everyone's seen this in action. Everyone's commented on QDOLED has raised blacks in certain lighting and, you know, blacks suddenly start to appear gray or whatever. And it was trying to put some objective data behind that um, to see well what what is the real difference what's what's the relative difference between those panels so I found um you know you, maybe you've got the article in front of you to to quote the actual numbers but I found that QDO led uh, sorry WO led was about twice as good as QDO led in terms of what I'd call protecting its black depth this is a a matte WO led panel that you get in the monitor space versus a second gen QDO led panel um, so it just retained the black depth much better. And the QDOLA panels, like I say, they've started to appear gray. The black started to go gray. And then in the LCD space uh, and in the OLED space, glossy protected that black depth a lot more than matte as well. So a matte coating would diffuse the light and the reflections a lot better, but it would start to impact the black depth, whereas glossy holds on to your black depth, but at the cost of reflections. So there's, I think it supports that long-held argument that, glossy looks deeper blacks it makes images pop it looks cleaner absolutely and i agree um but then at the same time there is a, an obvious trade-off in terms of reflectivity and you know the, the whole it's a long article and, and there's a shorter form video that's about 15 20 minutes that where i sort of talk through it um from start to finish so i, I guess i'd encourage anyone to check those out if they want to know a lot more about it but did you have any particular things that you spotted or wanted to call out from there yeah, I think the the most interesting thing to me was the the crossover points between you know whether the OLED or LCD was better, especially QDO like WOLED. I think you found to be always better than the uh, LCD monitors, but with QDOLED, you know the sort of reflecting the light issue. There were times where a VA and especially well, especially um, VA actually IPS as well, depending on the light level in your room it could actually produce deeper blacks from that panel just because of the way that the, the screen composition and coding was. So I think you found, I'm just looking at the QD OLED Gen 2 versus the VA matte panel. It was around 250 lux lighting in your particular test environment that this is sort of halfway up the range that you had tested. 
that the VA monitor actually produced the deeper blacks, the deeper perceived blacks, which yeah. was sort of something that, you know, was, we sort of, at least in my testing, when I sort of got those monitors in for the first time, I noticed this as an issue. And I sort of said in the review, you know, there's times, you know, I could put in certain lighting conditions and it doesn't appear to be all that much darker than the IPS monitors that I use for everyday production, video editing, actually writing the reviews, which are literally right next to my test setup. So I can sort of look at them and compare them. I sort of went, oh, okay, it's a bit, bit weird that. And then some people just in the comments of the video and things were just calling BS on that. They're like, there's no way an OLED panel could have higher black depth than an IPS LCD. There's no way. That's not possible. And I showed many examples in my videos and things of how that sort of plays out. Like you actually can get it to look worse and I can show you that. But yeah, by testing it across a wide range, you can sort of see exactly where that sort of lighting, you know, where the difference is and the differences between QD OLED Gen 2 and Gen 1 was interesting. I sort of looked at it and I thought it looked pretty similar, but you've shown that they are actually different as well, which is you know, a good progression for that technology. But yeah, obviously some some work needs to be done there from Samsung to make it so that people using those products in brighter rooms are getting what I think most people are buying those monitors for. You buy an OLED for its black depth and contrast ratio, so it'd be disappointing if you were using it in a bright room and you weren't getting the experience that you could be getting if you bought like a W OLED where you would be getting the black depth that you would, like if, especially if you had an LCD and you were moving to OLED, you'd want, you'd want to see a difference and an improvement and yeah, so I think that that'll be key to see the sort of how they go with like a Gen 3 of that panel. I don't know whether they'll put more work into it, but it's good to see it heading in the right direction. Yeah, I, I, and I know Samsung Display are aware of the challenge. I, I think, you know, their, their comeback is, well, it's supposed to be used in a dark room. And, and I, I suppose having developed the technology from the TV space where, like, I, I don't want to make it sound like QD OLED is useless at these things it's not the black is still very good but you have to have the right lighting situation and i think for a typical tv environment where you're probably more likely to be watching at a night time in a dimly lit room maybe with the lights off if you're watching a movie you know those black depths are still brilliant and you can still replicate that on a monitor as well but as if you're using it in the daytime office work you've got like a well-lit office or i don't know like it's a sunny day or whatever, then I, I think it creates problems. Um, you know, there are ways to mitigate it if you're going to use it at nighttime. If you have backlighting behind the screen, that was one of the interesting things I found was, you know, that didn't cause the same problem at all if you just had the lighting source behind the screen. So there are ways to get around it, but it doesn't make it very practical, I think, for daytime use. If black depth is your, you know, your priority and, and why wouldn't it be with something like you know, OLED. I think this is partly why IPS has been able to have such longevity. Like people always say, you know, the black depth of IPS is not good. Like the contrast ratio is bad, but in certain usage environments with the matte screen coating that most people would want to prevent mirror reflections, like those are very distracting when you're doing spreadsheet work or anything where reflections can come in and you're just trying to focus on the work. You know, in a lot of lighting levels, the bad black levels that you get from an IPS really aren't that relevant. Like if it's bright enough, the benefits that you'll see from some, you know, different LCD um, con- you know, panels is just not going to be there to the same level as you would see from, yeah, just different lighting conditions, like it being darker where you start to see, you know, VA come to be more important. And yeah, VA is still going to have that advantage in brighter environments, but 
yeah, I guess it just goes to show why IPS is still sort of so important for those usage conditions and how the contrast ratio isn't. Oh, it's still. I don't want to say it's irrelevant, but it because it, it is still relevant, but it's just less of a an important factor for people using it in those sorts of environments, at least in my opinion. Yeah, yeah I, I I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I I think it's. I think there's a place for all of these technologies and I think people just need to take a view of you know what what their lighting conditions are going to be in their room you know that was kind of the the aim of the article to try and understand or to help people decide well which screen technology should I be looking at based on my room conditions you know and it's it's quite easy if you if you want to measure the the average lighting in your room the lux in your room you know there's hundreds of different smartphone app, smartphone apps that will do that kind of thing nowadays so just to get a rough estimation of how bright your room is, that's quite easy. So you can try and get um, a view as to whether you want WOLED, QD OLED, uh, one of the LCD technologies. I think, um, like you say, I, I'd love to see Samsung address that more in their future generations of QD OLED because I think as a technology, it's got some obvious benefits compared with WOLED, like text clarity that I mentioned earlier, the cleanness of the image because of the coating type, uh, it's generally got a wider color gamma. It's got better overall brightness appearance quite often. So I think it's got its benefits, but there's no, the two are quite different at the moment, those two technologies. Uh, mm. But I suppose that's what keeps it interesting in this space. You know, you've not just got a single OLED technology that's everywhere like it was a few years ago in the TV space where everything was WOLED and there was no real choice. Yeah, and you want competition as well because competition means that we get pricing battles and things like that. And at the moment, we have different panel types between QD OLED and W OLED, but it sounds like in 2024, there's going to be a big convergence where there will be monitors produced with very similar formats that will use, one will use QD OLED, one will use W OLED, and that should drive a lot of competition and hopefully make bring some of those monitor prices down. Not sure if that'll happen, but at least if you've got yeah. two panel manufacturers, then there's the, there's the opportunity for that to happen um, especially towards probably the back end of the year once we start to see more of those W OLEDs, as you talked about, um, come to the market. Yeah, yeah, because until now, each manufacturer has kind of stuck to their own niche. You know, you've got Samsung QD OLED looking at 34-inch and 49-inch ultra-wide models only, and then you've got LG Display looking at 27-inch, 45-inch uh, ultra-wide, and I feel like there's another one that I've now forgotten. <laughs> they're, they're looking at those sizes. And they're not overlapping, but next year, you know, they're both bringing out 32-inch 4K OLEDs. They're both looking at 27-inch 360 hertz OLEDs. Slightly different timescales, but very similar. And I think, like you say, that should drive a choice where, you know, consumers will be able to say, okay, well, I want a 4K 240 hertz OLED, but do I want a QD OLED with that panel's characteristics or do I want W OLED? Mm. Um, and, and I think it just gives people a a much better choice and like you say, hopefully will drive competition and pricing down and that kind of thing. I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about actually us reviewing products. And, you know, I think people that have been quite familiar with my reviews over on Monitors Unboxed would have a sense of the things that I typically, you know, preference and recommend when, when buying. So, you know, if someone comes to me and is like, oh, I want a monitor, what should I get? You know, I'm going to have my set of biases as to the things that I find important. And it tends to be things such as, you know, I want nice fast speed. I want the color accuracy to be pretty good. If it's HDR performance, I need to see that contrast ratio. 
And I've recommended a lot of IPS monitors in the past just because it's quite balanced across those factors. But then some people come to me and be like, hey, I can't believe you don't recommend VA more because you know, I'm a contrast, like I must have the best contrast ratio. So I'm, I'm interested to hear from you about, you know, with your reviews and how you've tested monitors over the, over the years, what are the things that you think are the most important aspects to be testing for and recommending? Yeah, that's, it's a tricky one because I think as you test the monitors as extensively as you and I do, I think you kind of look for everything. You know, you're, you're measuring color one minute and you're doing response times and you're doing input lag and you're doing HDR. Like, everything is important to me and I, I try to I try to put it the reviews into context for different use cases so you know like there'll be a section mm. where I'm talking about well if you're going to use the screen for office use and these are the things that are going to be important and and so on I think like the most important things I think still would be well in the LCD space it would still be response times and refresh rate you know I think those are very important you know a lot of people are wanting to game on these screens nowadays uh, at and I know, I know we spend a lot of time reviewing gaming screens, so that's bound to be uh, a key focus of the audience who are bothering to read those reviews. So I think response times are important. Obviously, now that we're moving into the OLED market, response times are almost becoming a bit irrelevant because they're all basically the same, that I've not really seen many issues and it almost becomes a bit pointless measuring that. But I think refresh rate is what's driving the improvements mm-hmm. in obviously motion clarity and frame rate support and end-to-end latency and that kind of thing. But I think in LCD space, it would be response times. I think I think the the sort of initial setup of the screen, the accuracy of the screen, whether that's measured out of the box, you know, you plug it in, you turn it on, how does it perform? Or how does it perform after a few adjustments, like I move into an optimal calibration mode or whatever. I think that's really important because if you get a screen that is, really poorly configured like as i've seen them in the past where the the gamma is all over the place the color temperature is all over the place and then sometimes the manufacturer doesn't even provide the option to change those from the screen it just makes it impossible to 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 almost use that screen so i think that kind of initial setup is really important um and then the other aspects like you say like hdr is increasingly important i think for people with the you know modern HDR movies and streaming apps and that kind of thing. And then of course, HDR gaming. So having a decent HDR performance is important, but I think that really tends to be dictated by the backlight type or the panel type, you know, the technology, whether it's OLED or LCD, and then whether it's mini LED or or whatever that we've discussed earlier, I think that's a, uh, you know, you can spot that a mile off, whether it's going to be decent for HDR or should be decent uh, without even needing to test it almost. I guess another part of this that I've always interested in as someone that, you know, both of us have to test this is talking about backlight strobing because I test it. I've seen some really good implementations. I've tested, you know, BenQ monitors. I've tested the the PG248QP, ULMB2 monitors, really impressive technology. It still isn't something that I personally would choose to use or game with. Would you... Like, how important do you see a feature like backlight strobing? Is it something that you would personally use or is it something you would just recommend to a certain type of gamer? I think it's more the latter. I think it's, there's there's a there's a group of gamers who really like that. You know, like, there's no doubt it improves motion clarity quite significantly and, you know, it makes it much easier to track moving objects across the screen. So, but I think it's very much aimed at that kind of, 
almost like a hardcore gamer audience, the, the kind of gamer who is going to run the screen at its maximum refresh rate and turn adaptive sync off or G-Sync off or whatever because they know they're pushing constantly high frame rates and they're, they're not interested in VRR at all. So I think it's kind of that that audience where they're then looking for that additional edge in terms of motion clarity. I I think it's it's quite variable in terms of its performance. Like you'll see some screens where it's there and it's hopeless and it just looks terrible. <laughs> I say that's uh, about eighty percent of monitors. Yeah, yeah. And you'd wonder, well, why have you put that here? Oh, well, it's probably just to get that crazy one millisecond MPRT spec or something, you know. Uh, and it and it's totally impractical to use. And then on the other hand, there's a few screens like the PG248QP that you just mentioned where it looks brilliant. You know, it's really clear. The response times are fast. They can keep up. There's good tuning across the screen. It's part of ULMB2, so it's got all kinds of tweaks from the G-Sync module. I think that's, I think where it's implemented well, I think it can be really useful. But like personally, I wouldn't use it, but I'm not playing those kind of top tier competitive FPS type games anyway. So it's not really... I'm not the audience for that, but I, so I always yeah. think of it as like an, a nice to have. I wouldn't rate a screen down simply because it doesn't have it. Like I wouldn't say, well, that's a useless gaming screen because it doesn't have it. But on the other hand, I think it does bump some of those good, good gaming screens up to the next tier if it does, if it's, if it's well, well done. Yeah, I see it as sort of a, a casual, like for casual gamers, and that could even be people playing like Call of Duty, but just not super hardcore Call of Duty. They're just, getting on and playing with mates that backlash strobing probably isn't a required feature for those gamers they you know because it does have quite a number of downsides even on those top tier monitors things like not working with adaptive sync so if you're not quite pushing the top refresh rate of your monitor or you're not configuring it to run in that way you just want something that you you turn it on you enable things like adaptive sync then you kind of forget about it you know, backlight strobing isn't really that sort of feature. And for most people who are casuals, I think that the especially the quality of modern LCDs and OLEDs as well, the motion clarity tends to be good enough at those higher refresh rates that if you don't need to see enemies super clearly while you're playing games and you just want the experience to be really nice and work well, then it's not a required feature. So I, I'd agree with you about, you know, it's not a deal breaker if a monitor doesn't have backlight strobing, but it could, especially for those 1080p monitors that are pushing 500 hertz, 360 hertz, then it becomes more important to get those things right because the audience for those products are going to be esports gamers. They're going to be, I don't know if professional gamers actually buy these products because I've heard from a lot of competitive gamers that you know the tournament monitors are kind of chosen for you, so you don't often have the opportunity to be bringing your own gear into those sorts of actual pro-level play. But certainly for enthusiasts, you know, you'd want that sort of feature so that you can beat your mates a little bit better, I guess. But yeah. what what would you see as a genuine deal breaker for a monitor? Like what's the what's the thing that you'd be like, I just, I'm not, this one feature doesn't work, so I'm not recommending this monitor at all as sort of like a blanket policy? I mean, I, I think if it's, if it's something to the point where I would just say that this screen is awful, I wouldn't recommend it at all for anybody, then it's got to be something fundamentally broken, mm-hmm. probably, you know, something where, where it's terrible response times or some kind of terrible default setup or just something just doesn't work. I, I think there are, there are things that I would certainly mark a screen down for that are what I consider things that, you know, manufacturers should be getting right or should be fixing, you know, so stuff like, working sRGB emulation modes. I think that's important to people in today's wide gamut 
monitor market, you know, the ability to run in sRGB gamma, SDR mode, but have a mode that clamps the gamut properly while still leaving you access to the on-screen controls. You know, a screen where there's an sRGB mode, but it's got a locked brightness and it's really high. It's like, that it's just totally useless. It's totally pointless. That's the kind of thing that I would definitely mark a screen down for. I don't, I don't know whether I'd ever get to the point where I'd say, well, never buy the screen because this thing doesn't work, but that's a deal breaker for me. And I think poorly configured response times, particularly on VA panels can be a real problem. Um, if it just results in loads of black level smearing or, you know, it just makes uh, blur reduction modes that we just talked about, if it makes those pointless, then I think that's that those are kind of a couple of problems. And then, you know, on the subject of response times, I think a single overdrive mode experience is really important in that LCD space as well, because no one wants to have to mess around with switching their overdrive mode when they're gaming in BRR or they're gaming at different refresh rates between oh, I'm going to use the high mode for 180 hertz and then I'm going to drop to the medium mode for 100 hertz. So it's just, I've seen some screens in the past where you'd have to have like three different settings for different refresh rates, which is impractical unless you're one of those use cases where you know you're always going to consistently be at the maximum refresh rate or something. So to have a single overdrive mode experience for VRR, I think is important and nowadays probably unforgivable to not have it. You know, I, I think I... I published an article maybe a year, 18 months ago, where I, I listed five key things that I wanted to see change, and that was one of them. So I think mm-hmm. I'm at that point now where I'm like, look, I, I told you we we wanted this, and and if you're not delivering it, then I'm going to have to mark you down for it. And I, th- I think, yeah, I know you do the same, really, if there's you've got your hub checklist yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think, yeah, the single overdrive mode experience is probably acceptable on sort of like a budget class product where its competitors also don't have that feature. But if you're talking about mid-range or expensive products, then you know, if I'm spending $500, I'm expecting a premium monitor. It probably should have something like that, especially because you know variable overdrive has been talked about for how long? Like it's been the original G-Sync modules had that functionality in them. Some other scalers have that functionality as well. It seems to be implemented just randomly in some products, but not other products. There's plenty of time to get that sort of thing right. And I think I'm coming to the point as well with like VA monitors where... Samsung has demonstrated that a VA panel can be tuned so that dark level smearing is not an issue. So having a significant level of dark smearing in a VA in 2023, especially 2024, we're now like three or four years on from the original release of those monitors from Samsung. Have any lessons been learned? Like what's what's going on there? Like surely you've seen those monitors and are trying to emulate what's been done there. So I think something like that is probably approaching a deal breaker for me. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, there's, there's things that, manufacturers should be getting right now and yeah that's a classic example actually you know the they've proved that it can happen it, it can be done so what why isn't everybody replicating that I, I think the main culprit at the moment seems to be the the AU Optronics MVA mm. panels that you know their technology they seem to not be able to get it quite as right as what was at the time Samsung's VA panels I I, I think that's moved to is it CSALT now that yeah I think so. but there, there are options available where they've addressed that black level smearing and that just shouldn't be a problem on VA anymore. And I, I think that if you can address that, then it starts to become more of a, a wider recommendation. Like you said, IPS was earlier, you know, you can, you can use it for gaming. It's got a higher contrast. It's good for general usage. You know, the viewing angles are sometimes a bit more variable than IPS, but I think it's a, it makes it a far more solid all round choice in that 
LCD space and a real competitor to IPS, which has kind of been the king for quite a few years now, I think, in in that LCD market. It's been interesting to see the TV market for LCDs pretty much just almost entirely converge to VA, especially for higher end monitor, uh, higher end TVs, whereas I don't pay a heap of attention to the TV market, but it seems like IPS is very much budget TVs and, and lower cost TVs, which is very much not the case for monitors. And yeah, I guess motion performance isn't as important for a TV, but it's interesting to see that there's been so much development into VA for TVs that hasn't really come across as much to, you know, monitors, even things like, you know, just high zone count backlights plus VA monitors, you know, VA panels for monitors is something we've only seen a couple of examples of. It hasn't been as widespread as TVs where pretty much all of the higher end mini LED LCD TVs are using VA type panels because obviously the benefits of the high native contrast ratio plus the high zone count backlight, you can get some really impressive HDR performance. And again, monitors kind of lag behind a bit with that sort of thing, don't they? Yeah, but I, I, like I said earlier, I think that's that combination of VA and mini LED, I think is ideal for that LCD HDR monitor market. I think it's if they can get the response times right and we start to see a wider choice, you know, I think that's also the, the area where we'll probably see the price come down quicker than IPS as well. Yeah. You know, we've already seen, uh, although we have seen a couple of IPS models like the Cooler Masters ones we talked about earlier last year that were very competitively priced for um, mini LED monitors. But I think the innovation now with Cooler Masters new, their GP2711 that you mentioned and the AOC monitor I've just reviewed, which is the, Q27G3XMN, a pretty memorable name. Um, yeah, shocker. Uh, a, a nice short name, but those, those are VA panels, and I think that's where the, the price is coming down. So, yeah, I'd love to see more there as long as they can keep on top of things like the response times and, and things that, like you say, would be a deal breaker. Have you got anything else that you consider a real deal breaker? Yeah, I think monitors that have incompatibilities with variable refresh rates would be a deal breaker for me. So for example, HDR and and variable refresh not working together or delivering some sort of issue when they're both run together. If that's like backlight flickering as one example, you've seen, you know, the Neo G8, for example, from Samsung, where you run it at 240 hertz and there's the potential for scan lines in some, you know, some usage conditions. Again, the Cooler Master monitors from last year, they sort of shipped with you couldn't use HDR and adaptive sync together, which I thought was a deal breaker in those those reviews. And then they sort of fixed it. And then there was most of the time fine, but then you could sort of trigger flickering or backlight pulsing that was noticeable at times. So I think things like that where, you know, if you're seeing artifact, like major artifacts on screen or, you know, features that are really the staple of gaming monitors today, I think, Something like adaptive sync is really a you know, a key feature of monitors today. It's kind of every gaming monitor has adaptive sync. If you can't use that while you're gaming at you know a respectable refresh range, and if it just doesn't work in some way, I think that's a real killer feature. Especially if it's anything that like most competing products just do by default, and then there's the one monitor that kind of is a bit broken, as you were sort of talking about earlier. It's really these features that just are broken in some way that leads to deal breakers, and I think. It's, it's rare to see that these days. In the early days of adaptive sync monitors, there were many more monitors that had flickering issues and really narrow ranges and just didn't really work that well. But today, it really stands out. Something like those Cool Masters stood out because, oh, it, you can't use adaptive sync with HDR. Like, I've yeah. been able to do that on most other products. So, what's going on there? It's a bit, bit odd. 
Yeah, I remember calling that out at the time as one of the limitations as well. And like again, fair play to Cooler Master that they addressed it later on. But yeah, that that's the kind of thing that you know, you buy a monitor with a certain spec and you expect these things to be able to work. You know, you don't mm. you don't want to buy it and go, well, hang on, I can't game properly while using HDI. Now this is why I've bought this screen. So yeah, that something like that, I think I'd consider it almost like a broken feature or something that should be there that would probably be a deal breaker uh that needs to be addressed so that it just goes back to why it's so important to have user updatable firmware and that kind of thing as well because no one wants to go through the pain of having to rma a product and send it back to and pay all that expense or whatever to to get an update so you know we're starting to see that a lot more thankfully with manufacturers introducing user updatable firmware and you know long may mm-hmm. it continue really so remember earlier you you brought up a, a list of things from Last year, you said, I think, five five items that you wanted to see improved. I'd be interested to know how many of those things have improved because I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the worst aspects to the current monitor market. What are the things that annoy us? What are the things that do need to be improved in the future? So it'd be very interesting to know how many of the things you said last year have actually turned out to, be, um, turned out to have been fixed. But what are the things that are annoying, annoying you about the monitor market at the moment? I, I'll bring up, I guess, to begin with the dodgy specifications, right? It still is an issue where monitor manufacturers are not 100% accurately advertising products. I think it's been good we haven't seen too much of the display port and HDMI port abuse. So, for example, branding an HDMI 2.0 monitor as 2.1 because the HDMI forum allows monitor manufacturers to do that. seems like not too much of that is happening. But still with things like response times, you know, the OLED generation has brought in 0.01 millisecond response times, which is like, I get that they're trying to show that it's a big improvement over the LCDs that they've rated as one millisecond pretty much for years now. So despite obvious performance differences between products, they're all one millisecond products. So then they have to, you know, come up with some new way of illustrating that OLED is much faster, but it still does annoy me a little bit that, those specifications just continue to be, I don't know what the right word is, but not advertised accurately. Does that still annoy you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think response times are just meaningless now, really. The specs, rather, yeah. you know, like OLED. Yeah, I mean, they've had to they've had to go lower on OLED. I mean, realistically, you're not getting 0.01 milliseconds or 0.03 milliseconds is the other common one, but there's that distinction between that spec for OLED and one millisecond or even less that you'll see in the LCD space. But I think, it, you know, it's almost reaching that point where when I'm covering news, I might stop even mentioning the response time spec because I feel like every time I do, I have to put a little caveat that says, you know, take that with a pinch of salt or, you know, this is probably yeah. unrealistic. So that spec has become so watered down that it's a bit meaningless. Um, and I think the other one for me that I... That I do actually, I don't mention at all in my news is when a monitor is listed as supporting HDR. I'll only mention it if it's got some kind of proper HDR capability. Like yeah. every press release you see, every product spec you see, it will say HDR monitor, it's HDR 10, uh, it's got HDR 400 certification. I, I try not to even mention those because I wouldn't consider any of them to be true, real HDR capability. And, and that you know, HDR is so big in the market right now. That's been the big innovation apart from OLED in the last couple of years, you know, HDR capability. And I think the it's not abuse, but that sort of 
continual coverage and continual talk of HDR when actually the piece of hardware you're buying won't offer you any kind of HDR capability really is, you know, that's a, that's a, a real annoyance for me. I, I just think it needs to be, it needs to be addressed. I, I, it, it just reminds me of those days when HD arrived in the TV space and everything was HD ready, even though it, the TV lacked the resolution, the panel resolution <laughs> yeah. to support it. It's like, Hey, I'm HD ready. I'll, I'll take an HD signal, but I am going to downscale it to 720p or whatever the screen is. It's just, yeah. it's not the same. And I think there's just such everything accepts an HDR signal. Now you don't need to tell us that, you know, if it doesn't, then it's a bit of a surprise. Um, which is probably something actually I might even mention, you know, that's something I might cover in a review. I, this one doesn't even take an HDR signal, but I, I just want to see a better, a more transparent approach to advertising HDR, telling us that, like, what's it going to offer me in terms of dynamic range improvements? What kind of local dimming has it got? What kind of color improvements are there? Stop advertising things as HDR 400 or HDR compliant when actually there's none of those capabilities there. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that one. I think Vasus Display HDR certification has done a real disservice to buyers. I think that that specification is not very good. And you've made some articles on TFT Central talking about that in depth, as well as some of the other you know certifications that we're seeing that are, that are coming out and the the various issues with those. Yeah, I think I don't know whether Vasus made Display HDR to simply get monitors through the certification process and, you know, the potential licensing benefits of that. But that's sort of a more, maybe a less generous way of thinking about it. The other way of thinking about it is that potentially that spec was released too early in sort of the more, the, the infancy of HDR monitors. So when they're sort of coming up with, oh, we need to capture a significant amount of monitors that could be certified for HDR, let's split into these very weak categories so that the sort of the premium but still not very good HDR displays at the time get into the highest category and then the even worse mid-tier and lower-end monitors get their respective terrible and awful categories that go go below that. Whereas I think if they were they were designing display HDR, if they were trying to, to make display HDR useful for buyers instead of as an advertising mark that companies can use to advertise monitors, then they would design it completely differently. The things like Display HDR 1000 would be mandating significant amounts of local dimming, so actual full mm. array local dimming, as opposed to you know even Display HDR 1000 can be run on an edge lit monitor, which is just completely unacceptable in my opinion. And we've seen monitors that use just you know, edge lit panels, and they somehow manage to fudge the way through the contrast requirements because they can do some very basic dimming. I think if you know, in the current market, you could get a, a pretty significant number of products with actual local dimming passing quite high requirements. So something like that would, you know, obviously it's a bit late now. They're not going to make, I, I doubt they'll make like display HDR2 because that will be very difficult to explain. Like, why do you need display HDR2 if you've, if HDR it, itself is still the same, like the, the signal and content still the same? So they, they kind of botched that one, but you know, even things like G-Sync Ultimate kind of annoyed me a bit when that used to be a brand that could be trusted for those full array local doing products and, and OLEDs and it sort of eventually NVIDIA relented and certified some edge lit monitors that I, at least in my opinion, didn't live up to that mark. So yeah, it's, that sort of thing really disappoints me, those, those certification bodies that are thinking more of 
advertising, more about the, the companies as opposed to the consumer, which is really what a certification body should be all about is telling buyers what they're getting and not allowing manufacturers to, to fudge or BS their way through those sorts of things. We just see a bit too much of that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I like it's, I'm sure it's not an easy task and I'm sure that, you know, there's a, a big group of people, very knowledgeable people trying to come up with these certifications. And I, I don't want to sound like they're all useless. They're, they're not. There's elements of them that are, are useful, but I think it's, it's like you say, it's when things get watered down or when there's tiers that are, I think the HDR 400 tier is a classic example. I think that waters down the whole visa display yeah. HDR certification scheme because it's just, like if you see a monitor with display HDR 400, I would not consider that an HDR monitor at all. I would just ignore that certification. I never mention it in my reviews or my coverage because I don't think it's a a, a decent spec that tells you anything about the screen's capability. And most of the time, the screen will not offer anything remotely resembling HDR. I think it it kind of spoils some of the higher tiers where they're generally better. Like I know you mentioned HDR 1000. You know there are cases where you get edge lit local dimming, but the vast majority are going to be your top end mini LEDs, yeah. very yeah, bright. Right. Yep. You know they've got the wide color gamut, they've got the ten bit color depth support, the other requirements of that tier of specification. So they're generally better. And I think if that existed on its own, then you could have a lot more faith in the overall scheme. But when you've got like lower tiers like HDR four hundred, it just it just drags the whole thing down. It just leaves a a bad taste in your mouth. And I like. I try to provide the coverage certainly on TFC Central to as constructively as I can. You know, it's not meant as a complete moan, look, this is crap or anything. It's meant to provide feedback that I'm hoping like Baser and others will take on board and think, well, how can we improve it? You know, these are things that the industry are talking about. This is what's in t- important to consumers. Like, how can we tweak those schemes? How can we avoid weird situations like HDMI 2.1 that you mentioned, you know, in the in the future, you know, stuff like that shouldn't happen because it just makes it a nightmare for a, an average consumer. It makes a nightmare for people like you and I who kind of follow this stuff and are deeply embedded in the industry, let alone your average consumer who just wants to buy a monitor and know what they're getting. I think it does a disservice to people buying HDR monitors just in general, because if you've Let's say on your wish list, you've got HDR, you want, you're upgrading specifically for HDR because your old monitor doesn't support it. And your entry point to HDR is a display HDR 400 monitor, which as you said, doesn't really provide HDR in any significant way. And the spec certainly doesn't, you know, effectively those monitors don't really need HDR hardware at all outside of supporting the signal input. They're effectively just SDR monitors with HDR signal input. And if that's your that's your entry to HDR and you sort of, you bought this monitor, you, you plug it in, you're using HDR for the first time. You're like, well, this isn't all that much better. Like it, it kind of just looks the same. It, it's a bit brighter. The, the tone mapping is a little different because the HDR gamma curve is, you know, is even more heavily skewed to dark, uh, you know, dark levels than you would otherwise get with SDR content. But outside of that, like it's, isn't this just the same thing that I've got from my previous monitor? Whereas people who are upgrading to OLED monitors and you know mini LED full array local dimming actual true HDR products, they're getting a really good experience with HDR. It really is transforming the games and giving people uh, and and movies and other content as well. And they're sort of seeing, oh, this is what HDR is about. It's about the increase to contrast. It's about you know the 
the better ability to show shadow content and shadow detail because there's so much more data that's going into that and the, the monitors are actually capable of showing shadows in a way that is more realistic, you know, obviously brightness and, and wide gamut support and all those things. And yeah, I just think it does it does a huge disservice if and make potentially makes people less likely to buy the actual HDR products because they're not going to have experienced HDR in a way that makes that a selling point for a future product. Especially if someone's bought like Display HDR 400 in the future, OLED comes out down to those sorts of price points. You know, is a buyer going to, you know, they probably would have heard about OLED, but they would have heard about the benefits of OLED as opposed to the benefits of HDR, which when really OLED is providing the true HDR experience that those people probably would have wanted in the first place. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's a shame that people are experiencing that really. Now, if there's any listeners out there who've got an HDR 400 screen or a lower budget screen and, and they're disappointed with HDR, go and see an OLED monitor, go and see a mini LED monitor, buy yourself one of the display HDR 1000 or above tier monitors. And, and that's when you'll really get into the, the, the realms of like amazing contrast, better highlights, better color. You know, that's that's when you get that proper performance. So yeah, I, th- I think, um, you know, those certifications are a problem. I think, like you said earlier, I, I think, I've been pleased that we haven't seen a lot of abuse of the HDMI 2.1 labeling. You know, you do see it occasionally, but, uh, you know, thankfully you'll still see HDMI 2.0 advertised all over the place, which is good. Let's hope the same continues when DisplayPort 2.1 appears as well. But, you know, we don't just see everything labeled as 2.1 when actually it's 1.4 in disguise or whatever. So. Yeah, and 2.1 is a little bit more tricky as well because they've got the two different bandwidth specs that are built into the spec itself with UHBR 13.5 and UHBR 20, which is a bit annoying. I would have preferred them to to label those two things differently. So for example, AMD's RX 7000 series products are Display DisplayPort 2.1 GPUs. They do have DisplayPort 2.1, but it's the lower bandwidth spec, not the higher bandwidth spec. So theoretically in the future, there would be a DisplayPort 2.1 monitor using the full 80 gigabits per second and the AMD GPUs that are marketed as that aren't actually going to be able to run them, which is a bit of a mess. I, I don't really like that sort of that sort of marketing angle, but we see that unfortunately a lot with connectors and connection specs. The USB spec, for example, is just a total nightmare. <laughs> like the way that they have managed to butcher USB into so many different categories is just, I don't know, just not acceptable to me. And, and I'd hate to see things like HDMI and DisplayPort go even further down that path. Like I don't want to see DisplayPort 3 with like, five different bandwidth specs it should be displayport 3 is the high, the tier above the displayport 2.1 spec and just people can understand that the older version names mean the lower bandwidth i think that's a very obvious thing for people but unfortunately these these bodies don't really see it that way i guess yeah yeah it makes it very complicated and i think it feels to me like displayport 2.1 in the graphics card space it's almost in that sort of initial prototype release phase you know AMD yeah. releasing cards uh Nvidia haven't at all yet and I don't know if you've got any sort of insight onto what we might see next year from Nvidia on that it, I'd be amazed if we don't start to see 2.1 appearing in their next gen cards at some point um I think the RTX 50 series uh, it would be very surprising if the 50 series did not move to DisplayPort 2.1 but I don't know whether those will come out in 2024 I think the rumors are suggesting potentially 2025 for like a full architecture refresh from NVIDIA, which would give the 
a new display engine and give support for DisplayPort 2.1. It sounds like more of their releases, at least in the early parts of next year, will be refreshes of the current models, which will still support the existing spec. So, yeah. Um, if I think back to the days of DisplayPort 1.4 appearing, it, you know, it was a similar story. You started to see the occasional monitor announced with it, a bit of early graphics card support. I think AMD may have been first there as well, but then it doesn't really take off until you've got widespread support from both NVIDIA and AMD and it's mature and it's stable because I think one of the reasons why um, the display market hasn't adopted it widely yet, there are a number of reasons. I'm, in fact, I'm in the process of sort of uh, researching that at the moment and writing an article on the topic. But I think one of the reasons is that you need the stability from the input sources and the input devices like graphics cards in this space before you can really develop the monitors because you develop a monitor with 2.1 input and then NVIDIA release their card a year later and suddenly it doesn't work as it's supposed to, NVIDIA aren't going to go back and change their spec. You know, they're they're driving that almost like that baseline of what of the interoperability between the devices. They're driving that along with AMD. So I think the monitors tend to follow on from the graphics cards. You know, yeah. so once those are available and you can test them and you can do all your R&D based on the input sources being there and stable, I think we'll start to see 2.1 adopted a lot more in the monitor space. But mm. but right now, like it's not, I know you touched on this in one of your recent Q&A as well, and you know, it's not really needed in the monitor space apart from I think there's one use case, the the new Samsung 57-inch monster of a screen, you know, the yeah, dual yeah. 4K, 240 hertz. That's the first prototype really of, not prototype, but the first monitor release that features that built in conjunction with AMD. Um, I think until we start to see 4K 360 hertz and so on, where you're really pushing beyond the DSC limits that you can do with DisplayPort 1.4, I don't think it's really necessarily needed. You know, just DSC, DisplayStream compression can support those. It has done for a while. And that's still... You know, interestingly, that's still one of the foundational requirements of DisplayPort 2.1 as a spec. It must support DSC. It's that important to VESA. It's one of only two requirements that are actually needed within that spec. You don't have to support UHBR bandwidth. You don't have to support some of the other new features at all to be called 2.1, but you do have to support DSC. And I think it just goes to show that that is kind of like a, a foundational technology in that whole the, the, the data stream as it was. Yeah, I think we've almost got an entire generation of display connectors just through DSC. Like the, the improvement from no DSC to DSC has enabled so many more monitors and specifications to be supported on these existing connectors that we otherwise would have. And yeah, it was sort of built into some of those specs to be to begin with. So we sort of got, you know, at times the higher bandwidth and DSC at the same time, but then some graphics card generations one of the generations would support the new bandwidth, and then the second generation would would you know enable DSC support. You know, DSC is just enables so many different. You know, the bandwidth can stay the same, but you know you can use increasing levels of DSC to support higher and higher resolutions and refresh rates, and that's really extended the life of those connectors. Things like you know the jump from HDMI 1.4 to 2.0 and DisplayPort 1.2 to 1.4 seem to happen a lot more quickly than we're seeing this transition across to DisplayPort 2.1 because, as you say, they're not really necessary and also DSC has just enabled so many things. And I know there are people out there who are not a huge fan of DSC for reasons that I can't 
quite understand. I know that there are some GPU features, especially on the NVIDIA side, that are not able to be enabled on monitors that require DSC. So like your virtual resolutions and things like that are a bit dicey in terms of their compatibility with DSC monitors, even though I believe that to be more of an NVIDIA issue than a, a DSC issue. It's kind of on NVIDIA to make their features work with a display output spec that is widely supported. But I, at least personally, I've never really seen graphical artifacts or issues related to DSC. I don't know if you've experienced any in your testing, but it seems to be a very robust spec that I know they don't say it's lossless, but it is, as far as I'm concerned, as close to lossless as you could theoretically get. Yeah, uh, and they do call it visually lossless. You know, there's there's a lot of research papers that were published, at, uh, you know, several years back. I've been reading some of those recently that were, you know, they did all kinds of subjective analysis on uh, DSC versus non-DSC to try and identify you know, where's the threshold, like, is it visually lossless? And, I, you know, I, I've certainly never seen any issues from that side of things that I would be at all concerned about. So I, I would say that 99% of people do not need to worry at all about DSC. I think there's a portion of people who, I think there's this, maybe even a misconception that people think, well, if I buy an HDMI, sorry, a, a DisplayPort 1.4 monitor now, that's not going to work when I've got my DisplayPort 2.1 graphics card later. It's not future-proof. Well, actually, no, of course it is because the 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 interface is backwards compatible. It's the same physical size. It's the same physical connections. It will always work on future generation uh, graphics cards anyway. And, and if the monitor and its specs can be run fine over DisplayPort 1.4 with DSC, with or without DSC, you might not even need it, then it's absolutely fine. You don't need to worry about it not having 2.1. The only benefit of 2.1 would be, the only possible benefit would be if it was a fully spec 2.1 that could support UHBR bandwidth, which isn't even necessarily a requirement of 2.1. And then you could avoid DSC somehow. But, you know, if it's not going to give you any visual difference, but, you know, bar a few maybe bug type things that you've mentioned, or maybe there's some kind of weird implementation that affects it, I just can't see any reason to to, to worry about that at this point in time. I think it becomes relevant as resolution and refresh rate increases. So, you know, we'll see 8K yeah. monitors and we'll see 360 hertz, 480 hertz. You're going to need it because it goes beyond the, the realms of DSC. So I think we've got probably a, a fair amount of time left with 1.4 in DSC before we really start to see 2.1 adopted. And, and based on what you said about NVIDIA's timescale, I just don't see it being widely adopted in the monitor market until after NVIDIA have launched their graphics cards, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair assessment, pretty fair sort of look into the future for that technology. And I think as well, people probably are underestimating the additional requirements that goes into just instead of running a, a monitor at a lower bandwidth over DisplayPort with DSC versus a higher bandwidth over like a future DisplayPort port specification with no DSC, it, it introduces a whole bunch of other concerns, things like cable quality. You know, if you've got a low quality cable and you're trying to push a much higher level of bandwidth through that cable, then you're going to potentially run into issues where your monitor may not work. It may flicker or have other issues, may not run at the highest refresh rate. And that's not related to your graphics card or monitor. It may simply be your cable, your use of an old cable for a new specification. Alternatively, you've bought a cable that is maybe too long or isn't properly validated to support those bandwidths. And 
yeah, I think a lot of enthusiasts would be aware of the differences in DisplayPort, the, the, the requirements that you do need a higher quality cable to run higher bandwidth, especially over longer distances. But for casual people out there who are just, you know, they've got a monitor, they've bought it, they're just using whatever cables they've got lying around. Maybe they don't realize there's a cable in the box or they just want to use their old cable with their new monitor. They plug it in, they start getting issues. They're going to be blaming that on the monitor manufacturer, even if it's an issue with their setup and cables. And that's going to cause you know monitor manufacturers to you know have to deal with RMAs of products that actually are still 100% functional. So if they can get around that by produced by just using the DSC spec and running those monitors at a lower bandwidth, but using DSC. And that's a very functional solution with really no issues that either of us has seen. Then that reduces the complexity as far as cables and those things are concerned, which could just be a better solution for a lot of people. And, you know, I I would imagine there's as well, things like scalar hardware, having to support higher bandwidth, there's implications for the design of those chips, the design of the the boards and how they're getting the display outputs out or the higher bandwidth you go always increases cost and complexity. And if they can solve that via DSC, I think that for the vast majority of use cases, you would want to use the lower bandwidth with DSC over the higher bandwidth without. I think it just makes a lot more sense to do it that way, especially for monitors that you know will be run on products that can support DSC outputs, which is pretty much all modern GPUs. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think I think cabling is definitely going to be a challenge, you know, over any kind of distance. Like, and I'm only talking like, you know, one, two meters even, you know, like if that's going to be a challenge. I think scalar support is another one that, you know, having spoken to quite a few manufacturers about the uptake of DisplayPort 2.1, I think scalar support has been universally called out as a challenge. So I think the the big sort of scalar manufacturers, there's there's not a great deal of um 2.1 support at the moment maybe not any at all i think i'm pretty sure that samsung produced their own scaler for their 57 inch monitor that the the only monitor so far with 2.1 on it um and and i think there's also risk that you know maybe there'll be a scaler developed that can support 2.1 but will it also have hdmi 2.1 will it also have usb c support it's like you can't you might get DisplayPort 2.1 at the cost of some of the other capabilities of the scaler. Maybe it won't handle some of the features. Uh, That's cost, right? It's, it's more cost. Yeah, it's a cost. Features yeah. in. So even those, I think those first 2.1 monitors that appear will, when they do appear, I think they'll be limited in the other areas that people have probably got accustomed to having. And so I think it will be a while before it offers everything that you're used to having from a monitor now today, plus 2.1 on top, plus a cable that's okay. I think it's, there's a lot of challenges to bring that into the market. I, I know these specs get announced and then, a, you know, AMD release a graphics card and people think, okay, well, everything should be 2.1. Why not? It's, I think it's a lot more complicated than people realize, unfortunately, and expensive, as you said. What about the future of 500 hertz monitors? Because we've both tested the Asus ROG Swift PG248QP, which is a 540 hertz monitor. And unfortunately, at least in Australia, we're not able to get the IPS version from Dell. And I believe there's an, maybe one other manufacturer that uses the 500 hertz IPS panel, um, the Alienware model. Can't get it here. I've tried. So for now, the pg 24 qp is the only 500 hertz plus monitor that I've tested. One of the interesting bits of feedback that I saw from a few commenters on the review were things like, you don't need 500 hertz. This is a 1080p monitor. You know, Why should I care about 
500 hertz? Like, well, is this actually the future? What, what would you say in response to someone that says, you know, this sort of high refresh rate is not really a direction that's necessary for monitors? I think if you're a viewer who leaves a comment to say you don't need 540 hertz, I think you're probably the kind of viewer that's not the target audience for that product. I think I think the people yeah. who want it and would buy that product know that they probably do need it. You know, it's very much aimed at competitive esports gamers, it's like real top tier gamers where every millisecond counts, every frame counts. I think you know it's a very niche market. Like n- not many people are going to need that, but if you're serious about your gaming and you want the absolute best motion clarity, frame rate support, end-to-end system latency, because that you know that has a direct impact on your latency and your gaming performance. I think it. I was really impressed by it as a as a monitor. I thought it was a really strong performer. I thought it was super fast. I thought the motion clarity was second to none. You could add on ULMB2 that we talked about earlier. You know, we can add that one on top as well, which takes it another notch above. I think. I don't know whether I'd ever consider it like a mainstream requirement. It, you know, it's smaller incremental benefits on top of things like 240 hertz, mm-hmm. 360 hertz. But I think there was still a visual benefit. I think there was still and a, a, a benefit for that kind of audience. So you need to be in the market for for needing the sort of real top end, knowing you've got the graphics card and the CPU that's actually going to push it. And you, you're playing the type of game where you can hit 500 FPS or whatever. I think I think if you know you're in that segment, then it's the kind of monitor that you'd look at. But if you're if you're not and you haven't got the game that supports it, a system that supports it, then yeah, it's it's unnecessary. Why why would you bother spending a thousand US dollars or or more on something like that? Yeah, I I totally agree that multiplayer gamers are going to be the the sort of main target for that. And you know, especially once you use it for the first time, and that's something that like if if you're well aware of the motion clarity of your monitor, like you've looked at UFO tests, you are very much familiar with how motion plays in the game that you're playing. And let's say you've got a 240 hertz monitor and you move up to 540 hertz and you really tune into those things. I think that a buyer will notice the difference from 540 hertz. They will see the the clarity improvements and the response time improvements because that monitor as well is quite fast in terms of its response times relative to other LCDs. So if you're making a jump up from a 240 hertz LCD that's sort of a, a previous generation panel to a newer generation plus 540 hertz, you're going to see some sort of difference. I'm, I'm not going to say it's a massive difference because it's going to depend on how sensitive you are. But for example, Steve at Hardware Unboxed, uh, the other guy on our channel, he is very keen on competitive play. And when he saw that monitor for the first time at Computex, he was very impressed and could immediately tell the clarity benefits that that high refresh rate was bringing. And, you know, for me as someone that doesn't really play those sorts of games, and I think you you mentioned earlier that you were similar, you know, if you're playing at 120 FPS, you don't need a 540 hertz monitor because you're just going to be playing at 120 hertz. So it's not hugely important. But I think as we get more into frame generation technologies, you know, we're currently only duplicating one frame, but it sounds like with future research from NVIDIA and other people that the goal in the future will be generating multiple frames. So, for example, running at... 100 FPS, but then generating four or five frames to significantly improve the the apparent frame rate and smoothness, which again, if those frames are generated well, there will be clarity benefits on those high refresh rate monitors. And yeah, recently on Monitors Unboxed, I made a video sort of comparing using the UFO test, the, the difference in clarity between 
refresh rates down as low as 30 hertz all the way up to 540 hertz. And yeah, if you're already at 240 hertz, you're at 360 hertz, 540 hertz isn't going to offer heaps for you. But I was surprised to see quite a significant difference compared to a 120 hertz experience. And I think that some people, depends on the type of gamer you are, that upgrading to that sort of monitor with future games that are using frame gen and other technologies to push up to that refresh rate, that you will see a better experience. And even if you don't see it, it'll feel like the monitor is faster and clearer and you'll be like more impressed with the visuals. You'll be thinking that there's less blur in the game and that won't be just because it's being run at a high frame rate. It'll be because of the refresh rate of the monitor and its clarity as well. And that's, again, without even factoring in like ULMB2 and features like that. So Yeah, and I think the, you know, like there's only so many ways you consist- can you can consistently capture perceived motion clarity with like test UFO and things, which is great. But I think some of the benefit is is in other areas like the clarity of scrolling text or, or like tiny yep. details in images. That's when you can really pick it out, which is why if you compare a 240 hertz OLED to a 360 hertz LCD, they look broadly similar with test UFO and with those kind of pursuit camera photos that we both take. But when you get into the detail of some gaming, like finite details and scrolling text, you can see that difference which is caused by the added frame rate of the 360 hertz model. So it can look a bit clear in certain circumstances. And then, like you say, I think you've got the overall feel of the snappiness of it, the responsiveness of it. And there's, there's um, you know, the, the ability to drive the higher frame rates and reduce your end-to-end latency as a result, I think is like, that's where you're getting into the benefit area for those kind of screens beyond just the sort of minor improvements or the incremental improvements in the motion clarity. I think, um, you know, that's a good screen as well, where it's a classic example that it's aimed at a very specific audience. It's a TN film panel. There's no HDR support. This is one of the few screens that won't even take Mm -hmm. an HDR input signal. It's unashamedly aimed purely at competitive gaming and nothing else. So I think it's like, it suits that niche right now, whereas most other general gamers who who aren't going to be playing at 500 FPS or whatever competitively, they'd be better with a, a modern IPS or a modern VA panel with a mini LED backlight or an OLED panel, something that's going to offer you a better overall picture quality, HDR experience and that kind of thing. I think um, like 500 hertz and above, it's it's probably the future. You know, I think we're going to see 480 hertz OLED before too long, you know, in the next couple of years. I think it's only going to continue to go one direction. Um, and I know Mark at Blurbusters talks all the time about 1,000 hertz <laughs> being the sort of holy grail as retina refresh rates as he likes to call it you know that's kind of where the point where it just stops becoming a benefit beyond about a thousand hertz by mark's uh, estimation and i think like oled is a technology that's kind of ready for that it's got the response times that can already keep up with that so if we start to see the scalar support and the panel support that can drive it then that'll probably be the technology that gets nearer to 1000 hertz whereas i think lcd you know that's the fastest tn panel i've ever tested in the pd 20 248QP, but it's probably capping out at around, what, two milliseconds, greater gray-ish, 1.52 milliseconds. It's going to be hard to get it much faster than that to get it consistently below one milliseconds to support something like a 1,000 hertz. So I think we'll probably see the innovation in the OLED space for those kind of super high refresh rates beyond that. Yeah, and I think you brought up a good point earlier as well about things like text and, and input lag and things, you know, even just the desktop benefits of those sort of higher refresh rates. I think if you haven't experienced above 
let's say 144 hertz for a desktop experience, you might be surprised how smooth and fluid like a 360 hertz or 530 hertz monitor feels because the input latency is so low and the smoothness is so high. It can comparatively make some of those lower refresh rate monitors feel kind of slow when you when you go back to them. I think some I don't think everyone is like this, but I do feel some people underestimate some of the minor, I guess it's not imperceptible, but it's almost like a subconscious level perception to the high refresh rate monitors. Things like when you're scrolling text, it looks clearer and people will be like, well, you're never going to scroll text that fast and read it while it's scrolling at that level. Like it, your eyes are doing too much. It's it's too difficult. The benefits aren't really there. But then you start using it and just feel like, you almost feel like when you're scrolling it, you're accepting in more information like if you're scrolling through a large document on a really high refresh rate monitor at least i find it to be slightly this isn't a massive difference but slightly easier to find things in the text like if i need to scroll to a certain page that i know has something on it and it's a high refresh rate super fast monitor just being able to see those things in sort of like micro millisecond level detail it just makes it feel a little bit easy to use and i know this isn't like something that's you know scientifically tested or measured to be like yeah i can I can definitely find those pages faster. It's just one of those perception things where I feel like the experience of web browsing, the experience of using desktop apps outside of gaming is, at least in my opinion, notably improved with higher refresh rate monitors and is why I personally don't use a 60 hertz monitor for my production workstations anymore because I find that refresh rate annoyingly slow. I think it's very difficult to use when you've been accustomed to modern higher refresh rate monitors and I would not even do video editing or those tasks on a monitor below 120, 144 hertz now. I just find it too too visually blurry and annoying to use. And I imagine if in the future there was like a 4K 500 hertz monitor, that my experience would be, again, elevated to the next level through that that sort of technology. But again, it's, it's, it's a very minor, like minute sort of subconscious level feel that you get using that monitor. I don't know whether you've experienced that, but it's certainly something that I've sort of felt using those products. Yeah, I agree. And I think it all adds to that kind of overall user experience as well, doesn't it? So it's like your yep. your general enjoyment of the monitor. I, I agree. I, I mean, I'm sure browsing the web and using Microsoft Word is probably not a classic use case for a 500 hertz monitor. But it, it like you say, it's part of that. It's part of your overall perception of the screen. And I think, um, you know, users can very easily replicate that with their current monitor. If they've got a 120 hertz, 144 hertz monitor, whatever today, go and switch that down to 60 hertz and use it for a while and you'll see and feel that difference even from day-to-day tasks, you know, in Windows and in your desktop and browsing the web and whatever. It's just the same benefit applies as you go up and up, uh, you know. So, yeah, there is some benefit beyond just gaming. That overall kind of feel of connectedness to the screen, I suppose it is. It's like your immersion and your general experience of it does improve as you go up the refresh rates. Yeah, so I'm, I'm at least I'm personally keen to see higher refresh rate monitors. I'm not sure whether I'll be recommending them broadly anytime soon. I imagine, as you say, it'll still be more of a, this is primarily for your pro gamers, esports gamers, competitive gamers that want this that specific feature. But I'm sure at some point in the future, especially when, you know, if high-end 4K OLEDs are, are running at 480 hertz, people will be buying them not just for the 480 hertz refresh rate, it'll be for all the other benefits that come along with that, like it's HDR performance and it's black depth and it's just fast response times for playing games at 120 hertz and lower refresh rates as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm certainly very, very keen on, on that sort of future. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and I, I don't think I could ever say right now, okay, well, that's the best gaming monitor available because 
I'd say it was the best game monitor for if you were a competitive esports gamer looking for a small screen, you were happy mm-hmm. with 1080p and you wanted the absolute fastest panel and refresh rate. Absolutely, that's the best monitor you can buy right now for that. But if you're a more general gamer or you wanted to game in HDR or you wanted high resolution, larger screen size, obviously it's not the best for that. So it's it's always very hard to pin down what the best of any anything is because they're all aimed at different parts of that gaming or uh, that gaming market so i think it does very very well and i think like in time we'll probably see it you know higher refresh rates in oled higher refresh rates in 1440p and then that you know it all goes back to the stuff we talked about like advancements in mini led advancements in displayport 2.1 will start to need that connectivity later so you know the next couple of years i think will be will continue to see development in that monitor space with high resolutions, high refresh rates, and hopefully improvements in all those kind of technologies. Very keen on that future. Very, very keen. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up our Hardware Unbox podcast episode with Simon from TFT Central. We've been chatting for an hour and 40 minutes now. It's been a great episode. Lots of interesting chat about monitors in here. If you do want to check out Simon's work, he's got his website at tftcentral.co.uk as well as the TFT Central YouTube channel, both worth checking out, especially because the YouTube channel does not have heaps of subscribers. So go subscribe to TFT Central and start looking at some of his reviews and content over there. And of course, you can subscribe to the Harbour Unbox podcast as well if you want more episodes. I'm sure we'll be bringing on some more guests throughout 2024 as well. Um, let us know who you want to see on. If they're people that we know, we might be able to get them on and, and have a chat. So yeah, thanks for joining me, Simon. And yeah, we'll catch you in the next episode, which should be next week. Steve's back from holiday. So be a regular chat about PC stuff. So we'll see you in the next one.